Conversations with Leaders is a podcast focused on the intersection of business and technology. In this episode, we discuss the challenges and opportunities companies face as they shift their business to the cloud. Brought to you by AWS Executive Insights. Visit aws.amazon.com slash executive insights for more info on these topics. It's interesting, you know, when you talk about that principle of, of, of security, Clark, um, I think that goes in hand in hand with sort of, in my experience, the second lesson of transformation, which is this continual reskilling, this learning culture that you have to model the way on. It's not just training. It's not just like, as you talked about, shit. hey, let's train you for this project for cloud. It's mm-hmm. like, no, this is a continual reskilling journey. And you actually have to strive to be consciously uncomfortable yeah. with that continual reskilling of, of what you're doing. And, you know, for years, we've wanted everyone to be a security engineer. Yeah. Well, we know there's not enough security engineers on this planet to fill all the vacancies that we've got. So really, how do we, what mechanisms have you seen for, 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 for that to be enabled? In organization. Sure. So um, depending on the on the company, there's different names for it. But the idea is the sort of security guardians, security ambassadors, uh, that type of thing where you're taking talented uh, development engineers who may not have a security background and have them do a rotation through the security team. Right. So if we look at if we look at traditionally, the security team may not have the bench of development talent, although that's changing. Right. You get the development talent in. They learn what's important from a security perspective and a compliance perspective, and they help work on the security team's backlog, right? And actually build out the code to actually support the rest of the organization. Eventually that person goes back to his or her team and now has that security culture, that mindset, has that dotted line back into security. They're focusing on the functionality of whatever product they're building, but they're really focusing on the security because of the work they've done. So you do that time and time again, and everything scales, right? So now you have, while you may not have that 100% security engineer that you're looking for, you now have a security ally, someone looking out for it, and has the security bent, for lack of a better word, across the entire organization. Taking a step further, I love that idea. One of the things that um, I've seen work uh, is also provide opportunities for TPMs. Sort of your product managers to, to shadow with your security teams. Because to your earlier point about the feature backlog, right? The tendency right. is to prioritize customer features. Mm. And then everything else takes the back. Any non-functional requirements. Any yeah, non-functional yeah. requirements. Well, we, we can't actually do it in this sprint. And when you have TPMs, uh, build that empathy and understanding, not mm-hmm. just from an engineering standpoint, but why is building something securely is important to this feature for your customer. Right. Um, that actually changes how that agile team approaches the future development work. The other scalable mechanism I've seen for both security and operations is this: is the focus on uh, actually AWS certification. Mm-hmm. Right. There's a couple of a couple of angles on that. When when you're going through the journey, I, I saw that. Um, particularly in regulated entities, the, the typical audit question is, how do you know your folks are skilled to do their job? Well, when they've achieved a certain certification level, and the, and the AWS certifications are pretty, you know, pretty, uh, you know, pretty tough in my experience. That's a good bar. But then when I took the exams and looked into it, I was like, fifty percent of this, you know, the AWS Solutions Architecture exam is security. Yep. 
50%. And the other 50% is, is how to run it properly. So certainly if you're getting a mechanism in place where you're encouraging, rewarding, and recognizing the certification, then you're actually going towards that, hey, everyone is a security engineer. Yeah. You know, they've got, that, they've got that principle and they've got this sort of self-fulfilling mechanism that they're very aware of the capabilities of the, of the AWS services. One of the changes there is also making time for that reskilling. Yeah. Right? It's not just about, hey, we want you to reskill and here are the training dollars or we will fund it. But are you intentionally making time for your people to get reskilled? Uh, and taking them off the treadmill in some cases, right, right? of constantly uh, sort of doing their day jobs and then expecting them to train on their own time. Mm. And so intentionally making room for training uh, is your planning process in how you're actually... And training is part of your job. Training right? is part of your job. It is not something that you actually do outside of your day job. And I think that's a fundamental shift as well because people appreciate that because folks want to actually improve their skill, they want to get better at what they do, uh, and it increases the the career progression and the value, whether they continue to work for you, which is what you would want, right. uh, or if they decide to go and work somewhere else. I think it's a fundamental part of motivation. Yeah. yeah. And then, and then you know, for our earlier stage customers, it, you know, going down the training and certification path is fantastic. They need to have the uh, skill up the, uh, the employees appropriately, but I think the most important thing about that whole process is when that person comes back from training, there better be something for them to work on. Yes. Because if they don't, that training is, I want to say, completely wasted, but it, it dwells. And yes. they go back to doing things the old way, and then six months later, they actually have a, a yeah. some, something to do, uh, yeah. utilize the training with. The research on that's quite clear, actually. You'll, if you don't use it, you'll only retain 10%. Whereas if you use it, you're going to retain 100%. So there's some real timing mechanics on you need to be thinking about that, that deliberate, particularly training courses of when you're about to build something or yeah. do something with it. So we, we make time and provide mechanism for training certification, have something to actually go and work on lined yes. up. And I think the third piece is once you actually achieve certain milestones in that work, you then have to define new job roles and yeah. a career path, working with your HR partners very closely, uh, because you now have to figure out how are you going to redefine the roles, redefine the jobs, mm -hmm. because it's a new way of working. Um, and that's another part that is sometimes missed because it's, mm -hmm. it's very hard for organizations to wrap their hands around, well, how come a system administrator level three now is a cloud engineer. Yeah. And what does that mean right. in terms of compensation, career progression, titling? But hugely um, important. And hugely important. And, and I think, you know, certainly I've seen this in my own behaviors. You, you can uh, get attached to what your job label and title is certainly. as your human identifier. And I would disagree with that. I was like, you've got to be a little bit fungible about that. Because in this continual training, <laughs> this continual changing environment, you've got to be fungible with that. But establishing that career track, so important and bluntly hard work. Yes, because you have to question existing assumptions and yeah. span of control. Mm -hmm. You need to have certain headcounts or budget responsibilities to actually progress down the managerial path. Well, what about folks on a different career track? Are you building and providing them the same ladder to continue to progress without having that baggage of sort of how you were structured in the past? So what are some of the titles, the, the sort of the establishing titles you're seeing, the emerging titles? The cloud engineer, right? Uh, the DevOps engineer. And then I think from a 
traditional architectural model, which is one of the things that that I have uh, done in the past, is take the traditional sort of enterprise architecture function, which typically in many organizations, not all, is used to sort of define and approve what you're trying to do and make it actually a part of sort of a principal role. Yeah. Where their job becomes more of how do I scale everybody else in the company? And give how them that ownership. Give them that ownership and be that expert voice mm-hmm. that is there. to so, Sort of like a teacher rather than an approver, right? Somebody who is there that SDEs can go to and right. say, well, here's where I'm stuck. How do I get out of this and what is the better way to do it? I, I would actually go a stage further. I think it's a very topical. I would actually say, you know, that traditional waterfall model of the architecture team do the architects and approve mm-hmm. what downstream teams, I'd say that's becoming uh, incompatible mm-hmm. with, with actually modern agility. And I always almost say, which of your architects are still fingers on keyboard that can still code and can right. sit alongside the developers, the security engineers, the cloud engineers, and understand the big picture dependencies um, do you even, you know, I would say actually architecture has never been so important. Mm-hmm. How architecture is done yep. has changed. QA is another one, right. right? If you look at sort of how traditionally we have thought about QA is manual testing, maybe some test framework, some automation of test scripts. Uh, and in my experience, I think that job looks very much like engineers and developers. And so you need to invest in automation engineering skills because what happens if you're writing code faster, so you have an amazing pipeline to actually put it in the stage, and then you have a four-week QA cycle. Yeah. Right? Uh, that doesn't work. And, yeah. and so that role has to be completely reimagined as well. So probably the most topical thing of all I'm saying from customers at the moment is, yes, um, retention, but recruitment mm-hmm. at the moment. Um, Clark, what are, what are some of the things you're seeing work as, as effective? So having something interesting to work on, right? So if, if a customer ha- is not undertaking a digital transformation project or moving to the cloud or using some of the la- latest technologies and making things attractive to potential recruits, why would you want to go work on 20-year-old technology when you can work on... Especially as a grad. Yeah, especially as a grad. But, you know, even, you know, uh, technology fans, they want to be working on the latest stuff pushing uh, the boundaries of what's possible, really doing innovative things. And if your company's not doing that, and if you're not providing that structure and the technology for those people to work on, there are plenty of uh, companies that are, right? So that that new computer science grad has lots of choices, right? You need to make sure that your company is standing out from a technology perspective, not necessarily just the reputation or brand name of your company. I think that goes hand in hand with tech stack. Like, the money and, and, and the actual remuneration is, is considered pretty much table stakes now. Sure. I see a lot of questions coming from, what's your tech stack? Right. What am I actually going to use? What's your time from commit to deploy? You know, as well as working on interesting things. Yeah, I, I also think that uh, to when you're working on interesting things or providing opportunities to work on interesting things, one of the things that I have used in the past is put yourself out there. Like, go talk about cool things that you're doing at things like reInvent or other events. Partner with uh, local schools. 
um, they are always looking for apprenticeship, internship opportunities, interesting project to work on, because you need to go and communicate and build that excitement like you do inside of your company. Go externally and do that as well. So as leaders, it's important to talk about all the good things that are happening inside of your company. Yeah. Talent is constantly looking. Top talent is constantly looking for not just, well, what my next job is going to be, but like what kind of work I really yeah. want to spend next two, three, four, five years doing. Yeah. Or what your organization's mission is, right? right. And, and how do you frame that as something attractive to potential recruits? Right. The second thing I would say is start looking at places that are not traditional for your talent as well. And this is why I love the, the restart program that we have where we are training uh, millions of people in re-entering and cloud skills and actually coming into the workforce. And the Warriors program. The, the, the veterans programs yeah. as well uh, are, are really fantastic. Um, one thing that's very interesting, and again, I'll, I'll harp back from a, a sort of a security mindset, when organizations are looking either externally or internally for that next level of security talent, it may not be the people in the security department. And it may not even be people in the IT department. It's... I want people who think differently because you want a diverse organization who thinks about different attack methods and things like that. Well, maybe somebody in accounting, mm. right, who's very good at pattern matching could be your next threat modeler, mm. right? So give somebody in accounting the opportunity to move into security and cloud and all that kind of thing with, with, with that approach. Maybe someone in HR who really understands the way people think and act can be your security awareness trainer. Right. Yeah, and and so so it's it's really thinking broadly and differently about what's possible. And it's again back to the the human and the way they think and the way they operate. Do they align with you culturally? Right. And then you can you can empower them to do almost anything. One of the other things a customer shared with me last week that they saw a massive percentage uptick in people applying was they literally put on the job advert, full training will be required. And it sounds it sounds so simple, but they were after you know they were after people that are passionate about technology, mm -hmm. who are looking for that leap. And very often people go, "Hey, I want ten years of experience. I need to be a master of X, Y, and Z." And that's intimidating. Yeah. But that full training required, which in the scope of things isn't a lot of the money, they got a flood of great applicants. That and, and building on your your thoughts, Ishit, actually you've got to go. To where the talent is, whether yep. it's reInvent, the, the AWS Summit, serverless days, DevOps conferences, you, you've got to go and even take a take a stand with you and showcase some of the great, interesting things you're doing. Right. I, I do love the the some on resumes where you need ten experience, ten years of experience in a technology that's only been around two <laughs> yeah. years. Right. Job descriptions to that point play such a big role. Right. It, it's not just copy pasting what has always been done, but really writing, it's a pitch. It's a pitch mm -hmm. for why you need someone mm -hmm. and how do they fit into the purpose of your organization. Totally. And so you, you need to pay attention to how you write those job descriptions. Uh, I think the second piece is once you get somebody in the door, onboarding, those first few weeks and first few months, are so critical. Oh, for their first impressions and that onboarding plan. Yeah. You're going out there and talking about how transformative the company is and somebody mm -hmm. walks in and it takes them three weeks to, to get, get laptop. their laptop <laughs> uh, and their access. Well, that's not a great experience. Yeah, can they push code on day one? I would, I would actually argue that that's the third most important. The second most important is the interview process, mm -hmm. right? Because you're interviewing each other. Yeah. And, yes. and oftentimes that's not really uh, how it's viewed, right? So how do you, how you welcome in them into the interview process, 
what is it like? Is it laborious? You know, let, you know write a book for me to, to understand your background, or is it you know culture based and and principles based, et cetera? And how are you going to fit in with us, or are we right for you? Right? Yeah, and and is the interview process fair, and the communication is on point, right? So it's about not putting somebody through like seven, eight different rounds and then they don't hear about yeah. what happened for like weeks. Uh, so I always like close the loop and be very specific as much as you can about sure. what did not work out if something did not work out because that's what candidates are looking for is to is to give a feedback. But also that's an opportunity for you to ask if somebody decides not to work for you to say, well, what was in that experience that sure. we could do better mm -hmm. and what could we do differently? Also, if you're doing a coding exam, make sure it's appropriate. I see some really overzealous, <laughs> like, yeah, we want you to solve this ultra, ultra mission critical algorithm. Because we haven't figured it out because yet. Because <laughs> we have, or, and then you bring them in and you get them doing a bubble sort. Right. You know, it's kind of like, let's, 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 let's make sure that what we're doing is appropriate. Yeah for the job that, that you're going to do. Right. And also it's something that where you're not expecting somebody to memorize like syntax. So, yeah. you know.